Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the digital marketing podcast for tech marketers who are sick of shady, sleazy, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. So SaaS businesses in particular focus a lot on getting new clients, getting new customers to use their software. And they tend to focus less on retaining them or making more money out of them. But in this episode, we're going to go through the reasons why it's more important to try to retain current customers rather than trying to acquire new ones. So my guest today is Patrick Campbell, and he's the CEO of Price Intelligently, which is an agency that helps SaaS business to build a strong pricing strategy. They also have a free tool, which is a free uh, subscription financial analytics that plugs right into your billing system. So you can plug into Stripe, Braintree, or whatever you're using and get free access to like the main SaaS metrics, such as your churn, your MRR, which is called Profit Well. So in this episode, we are going to go through a step-by-step process to get to help you to get the most out of your current customers with clever research and many other tactics, such as the key difference between the value of a feature and the way it's used. So there's a lot to learn from there. And Patrick is, is going through a, a very detailed step-by-step. So as usual, have a listen. Let me know what you think. Don't be afraid to send me emails if you have any questions. Hi, Patrick. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for being on the show. I learned from you uh, and from your company uh, last year, and I remember it vividly because it was from an article you wrote, and I really agreed on it. So you were saying that marketers and SaaS marketers in particular, and even SaaS businesses in, 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 in particular, have a kind of unhealthy addiction and obsession to acquisition, right? In this article, you're saying that Eight out of 10 articles being written about growth in general is about acquisition, while only less than two out of 10 will be about monetization or, or even retention. But it's not only about the blog posts. You're also saying that the C-suite focusing, uh, focuses more on, you know, they want more customers. That's their main objective. That will be 75% of the C-suite, while only less than 10% want to make more money from, from uh, per customer, which is quite... Very interesting. And, and this article contains a lot of data uh, that you got. Uh, so my first question to you would be, why do you think we are obsessed by acquisition? And why is this a problem? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it started off necessarily as an unhealthy obsession. I think it was something where if you think about marketing, particularly in technology and in software, um, you know, the, the path of least resistance for, you know, the past 15, 20 years was basically acquiring logos or acquiring customers. There wasn't as much competition out there. So it became all about, you know, who can get the most customers the quickest and, you know, it wasn't necessarily something where retention or where, you know, your monetization strategy really mattered. And so I think that the reason was, is that it just was the path of least resistance. It was just the easiest path to get to the goals um, that people wanted. And I, I think another subsection of that is if you think about a lot of businesses out there, particularly those who have loud mouthpieces, they're very focused on on acquisition, mainly because 
they are, you know, customer or they're not customer funded, they're venture funded. So the idea is, is that they need to acquire as much, you know, surface area within that market to hopefully get that particular exit or raise that next round or, or do whatever needs to happen. But the issue is, and this is where this becomes a huge problem for businesses, is that the the old tactics, the old guard, the things that you know were able to get us there in the past, you know, even five years ago, just aren't working anymore. You know, the the if you look at the data and you look at the number of new channels that are being created per year, that's down dramatically. If you look at things like customer acquisition costs, those are up all across the board dramatically. Um, you look at competition on for content, competition for even podcasts, which, which is a relatively, relatively like newer medium and a newer channel, it's becoming harder and harder across the board. So the issue is, is that where this acquisition obsession starts to kill you is that you hire growth folks, you hire marketers, or you tell these marketers that the goal is really around acquiring new customers. And, and that's where like the least amount of growth is actually going to come from. Um, and it's, it's all supported by the data. So this isn't even like really an opinion. It's just one of those things where you look at all that data. And I think you, you know, you're referring to the couple of posts that we wrote on this and you're actually going to get two X the growth Um, 2x the growth if you're going to focus on retention versus if you're focusing on acquisition. And you're going to get 4x the growth if you focus on your monetization than if you focus on your acquisition. And so it's just kind of amazing if you look at at that impact. And I think we're starting to realize this or the the true growth people are starting to realize this. And that's changing how they think about their businesses because you obviously have to acquire a customer, but that doesn't mean that the primary focus just needs to be on that acquisition. Yeah, that's that's really good points right there. My thinking would be, like, if you have to think of those very, very successful companies, you know, in the last decades or even centuries, you would argue that those successful companies have, have one thing in common. They were able to create loyal customers. So customers who came back who were happy and who referred their friends and family and colleagues, right? So... Like, would you say, I'm, I'm going to ask you a very leading question on purpose, but would you say that um, it has always been the truth that acquisition was never really the end goal anyway? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, that's a really good point. I think it's it's yes and no, because um, the, the reason, even if you go back to the 19-teens, the 1920s, the 50s, the 60s, like if you look at any market, not just in technology, like the early parts of the market, it was like a gold rush. And if you quite literally look at the gold rush in the United States, it was all about like, we just need to go this like advantage of literally walking around and just picking up gold off the ground isn't going to last forever, right? Eventually you're going to need to, um, you know, drill into the ground. You're going to need, you know, pulverizing rock technology, et cetera. And so I think what happens is in the infancy of any industry or the infancy of any vertical, there is there is a bit of a gold rush. Um, the issue is, is that that gold rush used to last 50 years. And now that gold rush in new industries or even new technology verticals, it lasts years and in some cases months, you know, depending on what the technology is. And so, yeah, I, I think it's it's definitely something where it's it's always been that way, but we haven't necessarily felt it. Because the cycles of innovation, particularly in growth, have have not been this short, um, you know, in, in in the history of the world. Like there there isn't another industry, um, you know, besides SaaS and, and to a greater extent technology, where these cycles have been so quick um, ever before. Yeah, that's actually a very good point. I like your analogy about the gold rush because it's actually exactly what it is, isn't it? What's going on at the minute? So you're you're mentioning a few data sources and and the data telling us this is what's happening. 
Would you mind mentioning a few like reports or studies around those, this particular topic uh, that, that listeners might be interested in? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of this data is is researched and, and mined by us. Um, so um, we are we're kind of in a unique position because we have a product called ProfitWell, um, which is free subscription analytics, um, financial analytics that plugs right into your billing system. So you can plug in Zora, Stripe, Braintree, whatever you're using, and get free access to your churn, your MRR, etc. Um, and we monetize through some some paid add-ons. But what's kind of fascinating about it is. So we're sitting at this point on, you know, the most kind of subscription or SaaS financial data out there. And when we cross-reference that with, you know, some of these other data points that we're collecting, um, it allows us to, to really give this nice tableau of what's actually happening in the market. And so um, one study we did is we, we compared basically the macro and microeconomic trends of these different three verticals in your business, the acquisition, monetization, retention. Um, and I can give you the link that, you know, you can share it with folks, but basically what we found that it was that whole, you know, retention is two X better than acquisition, four X monetization is four X better than acquisition in terms of growth. Um, another study or a couple other studies we do is that because we're in this unique position at the center of this universe, um, what we're able to do is we, we have really easy access to, to actually pull and ask some of these individuals. And so um, the, the acquisition focus study that we did, we actually asked asked like 1,600 founders and executives, you know, what what their main focus was, and that's where we found it. And so, you know, we're we're sitting on that large cache of data that we can mine and you know help the community at large basically get better about their business. Yeah, and those are very interesting studies. I I read that a few times and a really good insight. I'm not sure there are any other reports or insights that are that precise or that detailed about this particular vertical. So just to explain to the listeners, you're the CEO of, of Price Intelligently. And as you mentioned, you also have a, a SaaS tool uh, called ProfitWell. And you've been the CEO for the last five years, correct? Yep. So it, it's it's been me from just me in a room alone, you know, dying because I was working so much to uh, now we're about 40 people here in Boston and, and we're, you know, completely customer funded. So we're, you know, bootstrapped is another way to put it. There's, there's been no outside or even inside funding in the business. We, we basically didn't hire until we had money from, from our customers. And am I right to say you started as a, as a kind of consulting business before moving on or is it the way, the other way around? Yeah, so it's it's funny because the original Price Intelligently product was a pure software product. Um, and then we evolved into essentially what's called a tech-enabled service, which is like, you know, there's software, but you can't buy the software. We use the software for you. And the reason we did that is because we found um, we, we could get a higher price if we did that. Um, but also, it wasn't a great experience from a retention perspective if we just allowed someone to use the software on their own because it's it's pricing data and you know people don't really do pricing every day and so they weren't really comfortable or confident and so we we added analysis or people or that consultative side um, that allows them to to be confident and kind of coach them through things. Well, well done on this journey. I mean, we can do a full series of episodes about how you manage to. To, to, to bootstrap a business from one employee to, to 40, uh, but we won't because we're going to talk about marketing now. But it's, it's a yeah, very, yeah, totally. it's a very nice, it's a very nice story. Um, we talked about, we talked before uh, once and I found, I found what you do really interesting. But let's move on to, to marketing. And there is a subject within marketing that is really close to my heart, which is kind of the fight against bad marketing and, and defi defining what is good marketing, what is bad marketing and, and all those shady, 
manipulative, manipulative, you know, tactics that people use sometimes to grow because they have no choice. So I know you're not necessarily a marketer, but as a founder of a business, I would definitely classify you as a marketer because you managed to, to grow a company from nothing to 40 employees. Why do you think marketers have a bad reputation in general? Yeah, so I, I, I think I would consider myself a marketer um, because, I, I mean, I run our marketing team, at least for now, um, and that's not necessarily a good thing, but I'm at least kind of in the middle of it. And, and I don't know, um, you know, we try to, you know, the whole shady tactics that's in the eye of the beholder, right? Um, and so, like, there's things that are very obviously shady and things that are very obviously not, and then there's this nice middle ground, which I think we, we sometimes, you know, fall into depending on what we're trying or testing. But I think that, um, you know, that was just my full disclosure closure on, you know, uh, I don't want someone to say, oh, I'm the authority on non-shady tactics when I, you know, send out a title or a subject line that they might consider shady. Um, uh, but we don't do any, like, you know, we, we try to live in a world, one of our values is, you know, build the company you'd want to buy from. And so um, we try to, you know, minimize as, as, as many of those or, or use that as our like litmus on, on what's good or bad. But to answer your question, I think, you know what it is? I think it's two parts. I think I think the first part is um, it's because people don't, and, and people being marketers, I don't think they approach marketing or growth, um, and there's a bit of a distinction between the two, as as a framework or as like something that's an actual specialty. Um, we're in Boston, and in Boston, HubSpot is headquartered, and so. You, we get a lot of people, and we've been trying to hire a VP of marketing, a CMO, um, even a director of marketing for a while now. And every time we meet someone, and it's not just at, at HubSpot, but I think they've tainted the entire city here a little bit um, in good in good and bad ways. But when we'll meet somebody, um, you know, and they're like, oh, I'm going to be a VP of marketing. And we go, okay, like, what does that mean? Like, what does that mean? Like, what are you going to be working on? You know, and, and, and what's like your, how do you evaluate things? Like, what do you do? And like, I, I kid you not, like at least half of those people that we meet, um, they're basically describing a content role. You know, they're describing like what would be a VP of content or a director of content or like, you know, a chief content officer. And that's not a bad thing. Content is really all the marketing we really do. But it's one of those things where, you know, they they don't know how to do high tempo testing. They don't even know what high tempo testing is. And, you know, they, they don't know, you know, how to test PPC. They don't know how to do a lot of these other kind of what some people are jargonly calling full stack marketing. Um, and so... And then what the, the kicker, and this is where I think HubSpot tainted folks for better or for worse is, you know, they want, you know, $200,000 a year and they don't know any of those things. And so it's like one of those things where, uh, you know, it's, and, and maybe they are worth it without it, but um, it's just been kind of fascinating where I, I think that when people think and call themselves a marketer or a growth hacker, um, they don't know the definition or the true definition of the term. And it's very similar for any developers listening to this, to someone calling themselves a full stack developer when in reality, they, they only know a little bit of back end, they only know a little bit of the middleware, and then they're really just a front end developer with some extra skills. Um, so I think that's that's one of the big things is people don't understand. And I think the other thing is because of that like lack of foundation, and, and I'm not saying I'm anywhere near a full stack marketer myself, just to be super clear, um, but because of that lack of foundation, what ends up happening is there's this path of least resistance that we talked about. And the path of least resistance is to use these little tactics that they read about in different blog posts 
And those tactics either completely fail, um, you know, in terms of, you know, hey, the, the channel's already gone or they're, you know, shady because it's like this quick thing that they can do that, you know, might give them some gains. And I think that just just turns into like not a great experience. And so, I don't know, that's that's what I would say. I kind of went on a soapbox there. So sorry about that. <laughs> but, no, no, you've been great. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, don't worry, I buddy. think that's, uh, I think that's, um, you know, that's kind of what, what I think the issue is and, you know, I think that you, you see that in the results and what's scary is it's becoming more and more obvious where, you know, these folks are, are not able to, uh, you know, not able to get the, the work that they need because they, they're, they're not willing necessarily to put in the work to, to get to the level they want to be. So for listeners who, who, who might be interested in the role, how would you define a kind of the role of a VP of marketing? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, it depends on, on what you need, right? Because there, there are some worlds where, you know, and that's what I was talking about, you know, the distinction between marketing and growth. And I, I don't think I'm the authority to even really properly, you know, label or describe that distinction, but nobody is. I don't worry, buddies. Yeah. 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 That's good. Nobody is. I like it. Growth's too, too early. I think that, um, when I think of like someone in a VP role for marketing or for growth, um, I'm really thinking about folks like Sean Ellis, uh, Gene Hopkins, Brian Balfour. Now you might not have the experience that those three people have. All of those people have, you know, decade or longer careers. They've all created very multidisciplinary approaches to growth, to marketing, et cetera, and demand generation. But overall, those are people who um, are really, really good at testing different channels, making sure those channels are evaluated, shutting down the ones that don't work, um, you know, expanding and going all in on the ones that do work, and being very, very thoughtful on how they do their marketing. And so I, I maybe besides describing actual skills, it's probably best to just kind of, you know, hear the archetypes, these three people that um, you should learn as much as you can from, essentially. So Sean Ellis from uh, Growth Hackers, and who wrote a book recently about growth hacking again. I haven't read it yet because I have an issue with growth hacking as a term. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have because I, the idea behind it is quite, is quite good. I think it's the way marketing should be done. But yeah, I haven't read it. Uh, and the two other people you mentioned are... Yeah, yeah. So you should read you should read Sean's book. It is really good. And I think he's the guy who so he defined or he came up with the term growth hacking or growth hacker with uh Heaton Shaw. And I think he's it got a little bit away from him, not because of his fault at all, but um I think that book is like the comprehensive him and Morgan Brown, and Morgan is a is a phenomenal growth guy as well. Um, you know, they really put together a solid look at um, you know, what that actually means. Um, but Gene Hopkins, um Gene Hopkins is someone that you know, if you're a if you're a little bit of an older school marketer, you know exactly who she is. Um, but she is someone who's got. I don't want to age her; she's going to kill me. But she's got you know 30 years of experience. I think she used to work for Mattel and Lego, and then for the past you know decade or so, she's been working in tech. Um, she was a VP, one of the original VPs in marketing at HubSpot, and then she's a CMO for a couple of different companies here in Boston. And she's like, she's just a badass. Like I can't describe it anything else. And then Brian Balfour, um, he's the former head of growth at, um, at HubSpot. Um, and also had a number of other companies that he founded. And then he's now, um, you know, the CEO of a company called Reforge, which actually teaches growth, um, and teaches marketing, um, in a very, very deliberate and strategic way. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. I'll, you know what? Full disclosure. I, I have never heard of the, the last two you mentioned. 
So, no, so that's, but you know what's funny? That's the problem. The people you've heard of, and I don't want to make a blanket generalization, but the people you heard of typically don't have like the actual experience. They're just really, really good at marketing themselves, um, which is fine, right? That's an actual skill that maybe they can use for a company. But um, a lot of the hardcore folks, they, they're just not loud in terms of their personal brands. Hey, this is why we're doing the podcast, you know, trying to learn every, every episode, trying to learn new things. Uh, so that's good. I'm definitely going to check them out uh, right after this call for sure. Um, I'm curious about the one thing you mentioned. So you said that you're definitely doing some, trying some shady, or, or at least you define them as shady marketing tactics in, in, in the business. Um, so would you, would you mind describing a few where you felt like it wasn't really ethical or it didn't feel it wasn't necessarily the right thing to do? Yeah, I think, um, I, I don't think we've ever done anything that was unethical. Um, I think that's, you know, I would not, I would not describe anything like that. What I would describe it as like, for instance, like, you know, and, and maybe this is just a different definition, right? But like something that's a little bit more clickbaity, you know, clickbait, you know, in terms of a title. Um, so for example, we have a, we have a post that we, we have now published once a year called the saddest SaaS pricing pages of the year. So it's basically, you know, that's, that's like a very like clickbaity title, right? But, and it's, it's a little bit high impact, right? Whereas when you actually read the post, we do call out, you know, hey, here's a number of companies, but we're very, very fair and very, very constructive. So we're like, hey, like this is what's happening with this pricing page. Um, you know, this is normally an indication of this. We recommend that you do something like this. And then we do like a very hard preface where we're like, hey, like we don't necessarily like know what's going on internally. So this might be working beautifully, but we're acting basically as a customer coming to that page and we're super confused. You know, they should, you know, they should fix this, that kind of a thing. And so that's kind of an example of like, you know, it's, it's a little bit more of a clickbaity headline. I wouldn't say it's unethical, but it's definitely, it's meant to, to get you intrigued. And, and I, I would say that's kind of the definition of a good headline, but it's a little bit more of a punch, you know, punch headline than, than others. Um, yeah. So that's an example. I think, you know, I don't know if I have any like hardcore examples, you know, other stuff that we've done, um, you know, that was, that was too far down. I think, Oh, I think one other thing we did. Um, so when we launched profit, well, um, and, and so we, our whole mission is to empower people to get the most out of like their SaaS unit economics. And so um, we've been working with SaaS companies for five years now um, and a lot of them at that. And so when we launched ProfitWell, we had a separate domain, but we wanted to kind of use that whole message of, hey, we've been working with a lot of people. It's not just like we're launching this as, you know, Johnny or Jane's startup, you know, out of our basement. Um, and so we did, we, we used the logos from both sites And we said like, hey, like, you know, we're behind the team who has worked with X, you know, this, these companies. And it wasn't, it, it, it was a little bit, you know, it might have been a little unethical in the sense that it made it look like, oh, these people are using ProfitWell, even though that's not what we were saying. But it was definitely something that like was absolutely gray and, and maybe a little too dark. And, you know, we ended up taking it down like relatively quickly because we had a couple of people who like wrote in and were like, are you saying you're working with these folks? And we were, you know, we, we stayed as honest as, you know, honest with them. And we we're like, no, 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 we're saying like, Hey, we work with them. And then they were like, yeah, but it makes it seem. And so we're like, okay, this is a bit of a problem. So we changed it, you know, as quickly as we could. And so those are some things like that are more, I guess, out there, but we've never kind of, I don't have any like good stories of like, 
hey, we like completely lied and, you know, we were driving down the street and just started hitting cars or, you know, something crazy like that. Nothing like that, you know, for better, or for worse. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate you sharing all of that, but I can guarantee that those are not what I would call shady or, or, or manipulative marketing tactics. So you're, you're, but that's, what's funny. You'd be super surprised because people like, there are some people who are like very, very high horse about it. Right. Like very, very like, oh my God, how dare you like, you know, use a title that's even a little bit off. And I, and it's hard because like some of those people have wide megaphones, right? Um, you know, and so it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things where like, you know, you look at an example, like the stuff that Web Summit was doing. Do you remember those guys? Yeah, yeah. And like, I, I have strong opinions, which maybe we don't get into because I don't know if we have three hours to talk about it. But like, you know, they, they do use some like, um, you know, some, some what I would consider unethical, but I understand that I'm not necessarily, um, you know, the, the arbiter of ethics, um, you know, and, and like in terms of their marketing. And then you have someone like, you know, Jason Calacanis who rails against them. And then what's funny is then I get an email from the launch festival, like saying kind of using the same tactics. And so I ask, you know, Jason, like, Hey, isn't this the same tactic you're using? You were just railing against, and then he's like, "Oh no, 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 no! It's different because of this." Because it's so my stuff. Kinda, well, he didn't say that, and I, def, there there was a distinction, but it was it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, who who's to say? And you know, unless you're like straight up stealing from someone or doing something really shady, um, you know, it's one of those things where it's it's hard to say and who's right, who's wrong. You should interview some like affiliate marketers though, because affiliate marketers like are brilliant at just like getting, you know, getting traffic and they probably have some good stories of they, they kept it in the gray until it turned illegal and then they stopped doing it essentially. Yeah, that's the plan. I'm planning to interview a little bit more like people who are more in the dark side of, of the force. Um, but just to go back to the, to the web summit example, can you give us one example of, of what you mean by what you would qualify to be unethical? So I think that, I mean, we, we actually, we got sucked into going to web summit. We paid for, uh, you know, we were, I, I had never done this before and I'm not saying like it wasn't necessarily worth the money, but it was one of those things where we, um, like they were like, Oh, we're going to, we're promising this and this and this. And like, just when, when, when they actually delivered, it was very different than, than the marketing, if you will, you know, they, they make you feel like you actually got into a program and like, you really didn't get into a program. They kind of accepted everyone. Maybe they are actually rejecting people, but it's just some of those, one of those things where like, it felt like a bait and switch. Um, and we made the most of it just because we, we did the legwork, but you know, it was just one of those things. And that was, gosh, that was four years ago. Right. Like, so they've gone even bigger and even, you know, crazy, crazier since then for better or for worse. Um, but like, I think I think there is something to discuss here. So you're mentioning about clickbait, clickbaity article and the headline. Um, there's a, 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 I believe there's a, like a very thin line between between the right the right and the wrong. But I think the, the the true differentiator between what is I would classify as unethical and and what I would classify as ethical is whether it's true and whether or whether it's not, right? So I know that in this day and age, we are like, there is like post-truth and, and, and fake news and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if a headline describe somehow, you know, the content of the blog post, even if it's like using hyperbolic adjectives or whatever, it's still, it's like what you mentioned, the saddest pricing, uh, the saddest SaaS pricing page of 2017 or whatever. To me, that still describes 
what you're going to say, right? Sure, sure. But sure, if sure. you compare that to what, what's happening with the Web Summit and other companies, I mean, every single day, is that they actually lie about what is in there because there is a limit between, you know, the way you describe things and, and making up things and features and benefits and actually the truth of, of the matter. So I think, I think this, is, this is why I want to call out on, on, on those behaviors most of the time because people are sick of it. Uh, they want the truth and they, they are sick of being manipulated. Um, and, and those tactics, those ta tactics sorry, are not going to work for the long, for, in the long but term. But do you think, but do you, yeah, like I, so what's funny is I have, a, I have a phrase that I like to use and I think it's the, the whole, the community polices itself. Like, especially, you know, if you, depending, and there's a long conversation about capitalism versus, you know, anything alternative, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, Web Summit is, you know, definitely like one, the, the actual conference, or if you, I don't know if you can even call it that has turned into just insanity, you know, 70,000 people, there's all this stuff going on. But I think that what's, what's kind of fascinating about it is, you know, we're talking about it, right? And we're not talking about it in a very positive way. You know, we're not going super negative, but we're definitely like, if I was listening to this four years ago, I would have been like, eh, probably shouldn't do that particular, you know, offer that they were offering us, right? And so I think that like, what's interesting is, you know, we can debate the ethics of it, but I think you're absolutely right in the sense that, you know, they're, they're just not going to survive, right? Like, or if they're going to have to survive on, you know, a much lower growth rate potentially than than what makes sense yeah that's that's a very long debate to have i think we can talk about that for hours but i haven't a lot of people have been making this point and i i, I tend to agree with it but i think i need to research a little bit more because even though things will kind of regulate themselves and, and those companies will die ultimately because they're not selling the product they're selling, uh, they're saying they're selling, or, or at least it's not good enough or, or whatever it is. I still think that there's a long buffer between, between the time they start and the time it, it ends. And there's always new companies coming up with those shady stuff. So sure. I have to think about it a little bit more. I need to invite people on the show that, that, that research that type of behavior and, and whether or not it's true that the market regulates itself. Because I'm not, I think the HH from Basecamp has talked about it to, uh, for a bit. I need to, to research what he said, but he's making a point of the fact that it's not necessarily true, that the market doesn't necessarily regulate itself. Um, well, I think, I mean, I, I think that reputation and brand are something that as, as we go forward, because remember what we started talking about, right? Like acquisition is dying, right? And retention and monetization, those things are, are taking over and they're more higher impact. An enormous factor in two of those things is brand. So while DHH and, and you know, respect obviously what Basecamp has done, like, but they might be, or, you know, and there's a big geopolitical debate about this topic, right? But like, what's kind of fascinating is that they have a good brand, like I've never heard anyone say anything bad about Basecamp. Um, I'm sure you could find it. I'm sure you, I know, I know some people who are like, oh, I didn't have this one thing I wanted or something like that. But there's, there's an enormous amount of like brand equity there given those, you know, those two founders status in the community, as well as, you know, all their customers that come on board and things like that. And they do stuff like, oh, the refunds come out of the CEO's pocket and like that kind of a thing. And I think that that is going to impact this brand is going to impact more and more companies going forward. Um, 
and that's they're they're going to die if they can't you know and die is a loose definition but they're not going to grow they're not going to win the market without that particular brand and without that culture i mean look what's happening with lyft and uber right like that's the first true test that is the first true test of will a culture succeed over a company that from all outside perspective, doesn't necessarily have a great culture, right? You know, and Uber's so far ahead. So if all of a sudden we start reading stories in the next 18 months or two years that Lyft is overtaking Uber in certain cities, then then it's like, oh crap, like, you know, maybe brand and, and culture can actually matter. Um, and there's some lurking variables there because I'm sure Uber is going to spend a lot of money to, you know, get themselves out of this PR hole. But I think that what's kind of fascinating is, is, is that's going to be a really, really good test to see if, if this concept is true or not. That's, that's a fantastic point. Um, that's a fantastic point. And I think DHH is definitely planning for Uber to die pretty soon. He literally can't stand them uh, for the exact reason you mentioned, actually. So, yeah, I would say like... Well, we moved just for... An example, we moved when that stuff happened, we moved the entire company over to Lyft. And what was said is one of our one of our or our actual our head of product goes, you know what, it's not as good of a product, but you know, we're gonna we're gonna vote with our, you know, with our wallet essentially. Because in Boston, Lyft doesn't have as much penetration. And so I think that's I mean, I'm sure there's other companies out there that have done that, bigger companies than us that have done it. But yeah, I think it's it's gonna be super fascinating how how that all plays out. I guess the main the main objective of this podcast and, and, and what I'm trying to make kind of my life work about is is trying to convince people that the only way to succeed long term is to build a good brand, to have a good reputation, to create great good product and services. And the other things will follow. Uh, but if you try to hack your way into that and try to copy competitors instead of innovating yourself, then you're going to end up into the situation where you 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 will just look up to the, this competitor who's way better than you has a bigger brand and you'll never be able to reach them um yeah there's two guys you got to talk to um two buddies uh david cancel and heaton shaw um both of these guys they we have had dinners coffees that all we've talked about is like the importance of brand even though the three of us are more data focused people which is just ironic given given that now brand can be data influenced basically. So yeah, you got to get those guys on to, to chat through this as well. Well, they are actually, uh, I talked to both of them. Heaton is going to be on the show and hopefully David as well. But yeah, I, I, and I would consider myself a data-driven marketer and I would also consider like brand to be one of the most, probably the most important thing uh, a marketer could work on. But I think the two work together. The long-term data, the long-term shows that 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 brand is is what matters uh, for everything, um, right? I wanted to 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 talk a little bit more tactical uh, with you. So we started the it. show about acquisition. So you mentioned that acquisition is dying, basically, which is a very clickbaity uh, title, isn't it? But so acqu <laughs> yeah, acquis yeah. acquisition shouldn't be really the primary focus, you believe, especially for SaaS businesses that are established and that are trying to grow beyond product market fit. So I'd like to go into a kind of a step by step methodology about what should they do instead? So they know that they shouldn't necessarily focus entirely on acquisition and maybe they should focus on monetization, right? Which is what you, you guys focus on the most. So if you had to explain to the listeners how to go about it and how to go about focusing on monetization and get the most out of it, what would you say them? Uh, what would you tell them tell by, uh, step by step? Yeah, so, so it, even if you're, you know, even if you're an established company, um, 
you know, like someone who's, you know, hundreds of people or thousands of people or tens of thousands of people, um, or if you're you know, just starting out, I think that you're going to need to do all three, right? Acquisition, retention, monetization. It's just at what level do you do all three? When you're just starting out, you might do a lot more acquisition. Um, and then when you grow, you might start focusing, you know, more on monetization or retention. Um, but I think what ends up happening is people don't do any retention or monetization focus in the beginning. Um, and then they don't do any when they grow, you know, because they're so focused on acquisition. And so for, for me, if you're, I'll, I'll do, if you're just starting out and if you're larger, I'll do two scenarios here. Um, if you're just starting out, what I would do is, is it's actually kind of, um, it's, it's a bit of the, you know, David Cancel, the Dharma Shaw way of building product, which is I would focus on 10 customers first make them, or users even, make them as happy as possible, and then go find and try to make 100 as happy as possible. And happiness is measured through retention, some sort of engagement metric, et cetera. Don't necessarily thinking about going for broke in terms of acquisition quite yet. Um, and that's the first thing I would do if I was growing, and that's not even having anything to do with monetization, nothing to do with acquisition, just really making sure that you're building something that people want. Um, and there's different metrics that you can measure. And then once you have that found out, um, I would do a bit of pricing, a bit of monetization, and the, the steps there are really quantifying your buyer personas, which is something that you know we could talk for hours about, but it really just means collecting data, market data from your target customers, so going and using things like Ask Your Target Market or Lucid or some of these other um, you know, market panel providers who can get you access to anyone to answer a survey um, for relatively cheap, going to those current users that you have, collecting a bunch of data, and then figuring out of your market, who you're going to target, and then setting up your baseline pricing based on that. Let's read it a little bit more into this buyer persona. So I know you talk about that a lot and you're quite familiar with it, but for the listeners who haven't necessarily heard of, of that before, so you would, you, would argue, you would say that they need to survey people outside of, of just their customer base, just people that they can reach that fit the same kind of profile. But what type of information would you typically ask those people? Yeah, it's a great question. So what, what I would focus on very early on, and then it, it can get more complicated as you get bigger, is I would focus on what are their most valued features? What are their least valued features from a perception standpoint, not from a usage standpoint, because I can name hundreds of products where the usage and the perception are completely opposite. Um, the other pieces are willingness to pay. And I'll, I'll share an article that'll allow you to, to kind of go through that. It's, it's relatively straightforward, but it's a little complicated to explain via audio. Um, but basically, you're collecting data on what their willingness to pay looks like and, and getting what's called a price elasticity curve, which is basically a measure of if you change the price, what's going to be the relative impact on, on acquisition or, or the number of sales you're going to get. Um, and then just as much segmentable demographic information you can. What's the size of their team? What's the revenue? What tools do they use? All of these different things that can then be segmented down in a way that you can point to, all right, startup Steve he really cares about this feature we don't have and aren't going to build. He or she really cares about the price and he or she's only willing to pay 50 bucks a month. We're not going to target this person. So any of our ads, any of our acquisition, any of the features we build, we're not going to build it for that particular profile versus mid-market Mary. He or she is willing to pay 500 bucks a month. 
he or she really wants this feature that's on our roadmap and really cares about this thing that we care about. Okay, we're going to go after that person. And the reason that this is so important is not only from a pricing perspective, because then you're going to price at 500 a month versus that 50 a month, but it also makes sure because when you go to acquire users, you're not just throwing a bunch of stuff against the wall to see what sticks. All of your content, all of your you know ads, all of your targeting, everything's going to be focused on those particular users that fit that profile. Um, so that's that's a basic understanding of of buyer personas. And whether you're small or big, what we typically recommend doing is that you're you're collecting data on some level every single quarter. It really should be like every week or every month. You know, it doesn't have to be huge, but most people they're not doing customer development, um, even the basics. And so we recommend like just getting a cadence that you can do every single quarter um, to get that data, you know, inputted as much as possible. I'm curious about one particular aspect you just mentioned. I've always heard and, and learned that behavior is more important than, you know, people saying stuff, right? That usually when you watch somebody doing thing, they are, they might actually contradict themselves. Uh, so why would you uh, advise to ask what features they prefer the most instead of just trying to see what features they use the most? Because, so here's the thing, you're, you're mitigating, you're trying to mitigate risk, right? Like, cause software, the beauty of software is you can build anything, right? And you're not going to build anything because you have some context of where the market's going, or you think you know your users. I think the problem is, is that we lull ourselves into a false sense of security thinking, Oh, like I know what this user wants. I can read that behavior. I can look at the behavior. In reality, you look at two users, you're not doing your customer development calls, and all of a sudden you think you're Steve Jobs and can just create the next big thing because you know how to put together a dev team who can, you know, build anything, right? And so it used to be okay to do that, right? Because you could build really, really quickly. You could launch a feature with some intuition. You could see if it failed or if it succeeded, and then you could amplify it or shut it down depending on that reaction, right? Because you know it was it was easy to acquire customers, right? But now it's so cheap, it's so cheap to get access to information from users. And if you properly set up the surveys, and it's not just you know your grandmother's survey that you're sending out. You know you're sending out something that is very, very well tested, you know, I'll, I'll share the questions, you can do this, you know, for free, basically, um, ask these particular questions, um, you know, you're, you're asking in the right way, you're forcing them to make decisions, you're asking them in ranged questions for the pricing, and you actually short circuit a lot of that risk and short circuit a lot of those questions to, to get to the center of who that user is. And I think what's funny is like, we, there's so many people out there who, you know, want to look at usage and want to look at, at behavior. And if you can do that at scale properly, it's great. But really, you need to be doing that and collecting market data because it's going to validate some of those hypotheses you have. And what's interesting is, like I alluded to before, there are so many products where behavior and value are not necessarily aligned. Um, the accounting suites of software out there, the number one used feature in almost every single accounting software product out there, at least the ones that we've worked with, invoicing. Number one used feature. It is the least valued feature when you actually talk to the users. They don't want to hear about it. They don't care about it. And the reason is because they just expect it, 
right? They just expect it to, to be used because it's an accounting suite of software. So if you're like, oh yeah, we're, we're watching usage and everyone uses invoices. So you're just going to put that at the top of the page. But in reality, they're okay that if it's off to the side because they really, really care about analytics. They really, really care about their income statements um, or things like that. And so it's just a, it, it's the nature of, you know, you're not omnipotent and you can't afford to, you know, spend too many dev cycles you know, building stuff that people don't want. And so you have to do all of these things and use them as input to guide your roadmap, your targeting, all that kind of fun stuff. Yeah, so we are not God, not not yet anyway. But I'm thinking <laughs> one of... One day. Yeah, yeah, one day, perhaps marketers will be... A God will be a marketer. But uh, yeah, I'm thinking of a scenario particularly where let's say you have a software, you have three features and there's one that is being used way more in terms of time using this feature but perhaps it's the reason why this feature is used that much is because it's so clunky people have to spend a lot of time on it but it doesn't necessarily mean that they value or like this feature that much so i i like i like what you're saying i i guess i've never heard this way of thinking before and for this particular aspect so that's quite interesting so let's go back to the step by step a little more so you say to quantify your buyer's persona making sure that you do your market research and then implementing a pricing process right uh, yeah, essentially. Yep. Uh, so that's for so that was for your small businesses or businesses starting out, right? Yep. And so it's I mean it's a similar process for the larger companies. It's just a different scale. Um, so just to finish that thought, smaller businesses really really focus on retention engagement. Do a baseline level of monetization research. Set up your pricing. Don't overthink it. And and the reason is is that no matter your size, you should be making changes to your pricing every six to nine months. Um, it's not something where you can just set it and forget it. You got to be making constant changes. Um, and that doesn't mean just raising the actual price. It means adjusting your value metric, adding a feature, subtracting a feature, all kinds of fun stuff. And then, yeah, you're going to focus on acquisition as a smaller company because um, you got to make sure that you can figure out how to distribute your product. But the thing is, is that you should be have different campaigns or different things focusing on retention and different pieces of the framework focused on monetization as well. And it really just comes down to discipline of, hey, we're going to spend 80% of our time focus on, on marketing or excuse me, on acquisition, but we need to spend 10% and 10% on retention and, and monetization. And ideally, it's, it's not like that at all. It means you have someone dedicated to each of those, at least one person. If you're in a larger company, um, it's, it's a very similar thing, but the proportions are probably different. Acquisition probably is, is on its legs. It's probably bringing you know, a good number of folks in. Um, and it's really, really important to go deeper on monetization and deeper on retention, mainly because you know, you're, you're going to continue to have that machine, that marketing machine going. But you need to make sure, obviously, you're, you're making inroads into you know, not, not losing that leaky bucket, getting good expansion revenue, and then also making sure that you know, really your pricing is set up for growth because you're just not going to acquire as many users. You know, there's a lot of companies out there that might have 30, 40, 60% market share. And with that much market share, like acquiring the rest of it is going to be infinitely harder. And it's probably not going to give you the growth that you need or that high level of growth. You need to you know, focus on retention um, and expansion revenue and also that you're, you're charging enough. So um, yeah, it doesn't change too much. It just kind of focuses in on, on similar concept. So how would you go about it? Because that's I know it's very difficult to go uh, to create a step-by-step -step guide of a podcast episode. Uh, we don't have a lot of minutes left, but uh, what would you would you argue that you would have to do this market research and this customer development stuff every month, like almost on an ongoing project, and then updating things 
when you when you think there are too many things that need to be changed, what would be the process for a big company that has more processes in place and more employees? Totally. So whether you're a small company or a large company, um, and and what's really funny about this as well is that I um, I, I actually so we're we're coming out. We've written a lot about this over the past five years. We actually wrote a legit book. Um, so it's it's going to be released as an ebook. Uh, but it's free. Um, and so it's one of those things where it's, you know, it's the complete, we're calling, I don't know what we're calling it, probably something clickbaity as, as people will say, but um, I will, I'll make sure that you have the link and I'll make sure it's launched before this goes live. But it, it basically is a step-by-step guide for all of this stuff. Um, you know, and it's, it's free. And I promise you, if you read it and you actually go through it, there's enough there to, to take you to where you need. But to answer your question directly, um, what, what I recommend doing is, is giving, assigning someone to this role. Um, particularly for pricing or for market research. And so you give it to, you know, it might be 20% of someone's time really early on. So one day a week. Um, and you, you might have people meet, you know, once every couple of weeks to, to really find out what that person has found. Um, but you're, you're definitely having, you know, someone think about this at least 20% of their time. And then as you get bigger, it ideally should be a single person either in product or marketing or even more if you're a really large company who thinks about this stuff all the time because the stakes are just getting that high and, and there needs to be a lot more work done on customer research as, as well as on, um, on pricing in general. Fantastic. Yeah, that sounds really good. I like the fact that you mentioned like it's actual book to make sure that people like don't read an ebook that is just 10 page, you know, you know, those books, so-called books online that you download, they are like 15 pages long and the font size is like 24 and uh, there's like three paragraphs a page. So this is not the type of book you're talking about, right? No, I think it, I think it clocked in at like 150 pages. Um, so, and, and keep in mind, you know, we, it's designed, so it's not 150 pages of 12 point font, just lines. So it's, you know, there's, there's some design there, but it's, it basically, and, and, and it, it, it goes pretty well into depth. It, I almost guarantee you anyone who's listening, and this is going to get me in trouble, but I almost guarantee you that it's um, deeper than most of, most of the folks listening have gone on pricing. Um, and if it's not, I will share resources with that individual who contacts me and says it was they knew everything that we wrote um and, and give them something uh, a little bit deeper that they can they can chew on yeah i think it's pretty safe uh, to make this statement given the knowledge you guys have on, on pricing which is a very uh, in-depth subject i mean it's a very precise subject right so you've been really helpful on this that's really i've learned quite a lot on this episode uh, before you go what do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in the next 10 years 20 years 50 years Ooh, wow that's a that's a deep question um i think you know in all in all frankness i think the the biggest thing oh shit um oh sorry i went it's this okay. whole time without cursing you can curse um, so loud actually i know uh, well, I know, like, because so, you know, you, you'll get the now it'll be explicit. Like, oh, it's an explicit interview. It's always uh, explicit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, ooh, I think that you know what? I, I really think it's some of the growth stuff that we talked about earlier in the show. Um, I, I really think that that's the fact. Because, because think about it. Like, most of the people who are going to read this know what growth is, or at least a basic idea of it. But the vast majority of marketers probably, you know, they're they're not they're not up there yet. Um, like my mom was a marketer, but my mom, like 
growth hacking, no idea what that means. She did like event marketing, right? Um, she would have no idea like about growth frameworks or high tempo testing or kind of data driven, like that kind of stuff, just because it was a very different world, you know, and she just retired. So like it was a very different world um, back when she was like starting her job as a marketer. And so I would really, really say like, figuring out how to do high tempo testing, figuring out how to really run a growth framework and ultimately making sure that you're doing as much customer research as possible, even if you're running a marketing department, because that's going to guide and, and influence your customer acquisition costs, your lifetime value and all of those different things. Um, and that's where the world's going. Like you're not going to be able to be what you know they used to call an arts and crafts marketer because you know it's just not, it's just not going to work anymore. You're not going to get any lift. You really, really need to go to this new world. Hmm. I agree. What would be the top three resources that listeners should should read or listen to or look at? Great question. So I, I would check out Hacking Growth by Morgan Brown and Sean Ellis. It's their new book. Notice how they flipped growth hacking to hacking growth. Um, so, But I would check that out mainly because it's going to give you a framework. Um, it's really, really going to give you a really good understanding of you know, how to approach things. Um, the second piece that I would look at is um, Brian Belfort's blog called Co-Elevate. Um, so Brian, Brian is, is just, he's brilliant and probably the least promotional person in this space. Um, and that's because he's extremely thoughtful and, and just kind of focuses a lot of um, his talent and energy on actually doing the job. And so um, his blog is just every blog post is like nuggets of gold. And I think he's only he only does one like once a month. And so it's like a really good you know, breakdown. Um, and then I would I would I would recommend um, checking out the, the price intelligent ebook that I'm going to share, um, because I think that there's uh, and it's it is a plug, but I, I think that. I could pretty objectively or as, as objectively say that um, like we're the only folks talking about the process with pricing or the framework for pricing. Most, most people, they, they, you know, who are in our space, um, they're very, very old school enterprise. And so they don't share a lot of the learnings and a lot of the education because they, that's what they sell. Um, and so it's one of those things where, um, you know, I'm not going to say it's the most comprehensive, um, because there's, there's definitely textbooks that are really good, but it's one of the most approachable ways that you can learn, um, the pricing process we'll say. Um, so those are the three that I would really, really kind of focus on to, to learn a lot about the stuff that we talked about. Yeah, but it's like a good cook. Like this is the reason why chefs are, are writing books. They know very well that, you know, you can copy, try to copy what they do. You'll never be as good as them. So fair play for sharing all of those stuff. And thanks so much for your time on this episode. Do you have anything to add? No, it's just been fun. I think um, I always enjoy like, you know, conversations where I'm forced to think about things that I haven't really thought about. So I appreciate the, uh, the, the great questions. Great. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Awesome, brother. We'll see ya. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email list uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one -one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you 
my numbers and how many listens we get. And I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests. And perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday. So don't be afraid to subscribe. I'm not going to spam you. And you can always uns unsubscribe for sure if you wish. The second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback. We know that this show is not perfect yet and we always... Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five star review it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker So thank you so much once again and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.